0: This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, 2 bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of the show, plus the chance to vote on upcoming topics, while full members get all that, plus members-only bonus episodes. Sign up at patreon.com slash Left or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn the fact that welfare technically no longer exists in America, except as a dog whistle term used to push an ideology that divides the majority for the enrichment of the minority. Clips today come from Citations Needed, Ring of Fire, Off-Kilter, and Reveal.
1: So what do we mean when we talk about welfare? It's really this this catch-all term That could encompass any or all of the following social safety net programs. That could include the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP, uh, better known in layman's terms as food stamps. Uh, Housing assistance,
2: um, supplemental security income, uh, temporary assistance to needy families, uh, TANF, which is cash benefits, and general assistance. Usually it's we're going
1: to reform or the GOP is going to attack and gut Welfare,
2: because welfare is for poor black people. It's deeply racialized. It also is, is a kind of, for example, if you were to say, come over to my house and say, uh, you know, let me borrow your lawnmower. Say, I say, don't, I don't do welfare. It's a colloquial pejorative for something that's kind of a, a superfluous giveaway. You sort of don't deserve, but I'm going to give it to you because... Because I'm nice, because I'm benevolent, right? And so deservingness,
1: I think, is a key component of this. And this has been a very racialized term for decades now. I think we can trace it back a little further than this, but I think it's really important to actually listen to the Ronald Reagan campaign speech, the clip from his presidential campaign speech in in 1976, where this notion of the welfare queen really was birthed.
3: In Chicago,
4: they found a woman who holds the record. She used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone numbers to collect food stamps, Social Security, veterans benefits for four non-existent deceased veterans husbands, as well as welfare. Her tax-free cash income alone has been running $150,000 a year.
1: That is the very famous Ronald Reagan quote that really introduced this notion of undeserving handouts to people that are mooching. That was not true at all, right? Well, part of that is that the person he's actually talking about, whose story is is not quite what he was saying in its very tragic tale, um, the person's name is actually Linda Taylor, and she wasn't even black. But the way that it reads, right. the way that it reads and the way that it was then exploited because Reagan kind of shopped around that quote- A lot. And he used it, he kind of tested it out in his Southern speeches. And then in those speeches, he actually used the term standing in line at a grocery store behind this young strapping buck. Who was using food stamps to buy like T-bone steaks? Yeah, he knew what the fuck he was doing. And Buck, if you actually know about the, yeah, the yeah. racialized terms yeah. in the United States discourse and American discourse, Buck is a one hundred percent racialized term, meaning like yeah. a young black guy, and usually as it pertains to like threatening or raping white women. I mean, it's, it's fundamental to like Birth of a Nation. The trope of a Buck as being a very racialized term is right. Su- so he, is was, set.
2: he was. He was. He was. And then sort of
1: later. In the campaign, Reagan would actually change that to like to, oh, a young man. Once it was embedded what he was talking about, he didn't have to be as racialized in the way that he was saying that.
2: Again, he knew exactly what he was doing. This is a speech that was given, much like his states' rights speech in in Philadelphia, Mississippi. You know, we use this metaphor in the episode with the atheist, but it's it's the language has subtext, it has it has context. If you come over to my house and you open the refrigerator. And I say, have whatever you like, and you take the ice cube trays. We would consider that antisocial behavior because words words have. But that's con- clearly not what you mean. Yeah, and so like Reagan knows this. We exactly. know, we all know what this means. Exactly. And part of what we try to do on the show is to say, like, clearly, welfare has a racist implication, or at the very least, at the very least has a sense of undeserved Mutualism. right? And so, when I was in church as a kid, I'm going go on a rant here. Sorry. When I was in church as a kid, and the, there was a really great sermon that was given about. By Buckner Fanning, a Trinity Baptist, after we left Cornerstone, he had a whole sermon about the difference between grace and charity. Charity was sort of, in the Christian context, is considered something that you, you've been forsaken or you've been born poor, that you know charity is something you give someone. Mm-hmm. Whereas grace is sort of something that God does for you that you've, you don't deserve, that you fucked up. And grace, which is considered in certain Christian circles to be the highest sort of moral order, right. is something the you give someone. The most benevolent. Yeah, because you don't even deserve it. And welfare is a sort of secular version of grace. It's saying that, like, you're a piece of shit, you're lazy, right? but I'm going to give you welfare right. because it's right. sort of the superfluous it's not, thing. It's not
1: even charity. It's not even, no, it's char- not even charity. It's, it's the just total giving over of something totally undeserved. And actually, this notion is is unpacked brilliantly in the book Dog Whistle Politics by Berkeley professor Ian Hani Lopez, who – points out that in modern American politics, there are commonly two broad themes. One is the declining economic opportunity, and the other, obviously, is race. Henny Lopez defines dog whistle politics as, quote, coded racial appeals that carefully manipulate hostility toward non-whites. And examples that he gives are things we've often discussed on this show, Adam, like racialized crime reporting, demagoguery about welfare queens or of the food stamp president, and even brown hordes crossing borders and installing Sharia law in town halls and state capitals. So like... This is all part of a political calculus to divide and conquer, right? To exploit and encourage working middle, lower class white people to support what are clearly self-defeating policies and, right. and, and voting against their own interests because they see themselves as being deserving and others as not. Right.
2: They would literally rather die than help out a poor black guy <laughs> right? because they've earned it and he or she has not.
1: Exactly. So the point... Is obviously producing this feeling or a frustration, a sense that some people, blacks, immigrants, Muslims, women, wh- whatever, are getting more than what they work for, right? More than what they earn, ultimately, more than what they deserve. And not only that, but these gains, these handouts come out of the pockets of upstanding white taxpayers, right? The taxpayers handouts that, is that, a good that one do too. this. And so. It winds up doing this zero-sum game where hardworking Americans, which is always code for white people and no one else, are being taken advantage of by those on welfare, right? Those
2: getting stuff that they don't deserve. I do want to be clear here because the word racially charged is, I think, useful here because I do think that if this was like, let's say like in Britain, where the population of minorities is less, or even like a Norway or whatever, or even if, you know, we woke up one day and this country was entirely white, these concepts would still exist, but they wouldn't quite have nearly the amount of purchase, like on a visceral level mm-hmm. that they would have otherwise. So when Fox News, which they love to do, they love to do this this graphic where it's handout nation, and John Stewart used to make fun of it, mm-hmm. where a hand comes out, like literally a hand protrudes out of America. It's this like white, proper Christian hand. <laughs> And it's handing money to like the rest of his country. So it's like really right. cartoonish. I wish we had a TV show so we could show it, but it's, it's like, well, hand there. comes through and it shows you handout nation. Cause we're all just a bunch of mooches. And the whole segment is about people that are abusing welfare. And, and this is something you see time and time again, where welfare abuse is the single most common thing that happens all the time. And people are just mooching, riding the gravy train and not working well. Cause the implication is being that while you work, cause again, Americans are deeply overworked, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. While you work 50 hours a week at Walmart and you're white. And you play by the rules. That there's this black guy across the street is just living large, and and going to the grocery store and buying. All kinds of watching, shit. On-
1: watching a huge flat screen, oh, yeah, up, oh, yeah, not doing work, not doing shit. And so Trump traffics on this all the time, oh, yeah, all the time. In a large part, he got elected because yep. of this and specifically articulated exactly what we've been talking about during a cabinet meeting back in October. And I actually want to play that clip right now.
4: We're going to be looking at very strongly is welfare reform. That's becoming a very, very big subject, and uh, people are taking advantage of the system, and then other people aren't aren't receiving what they really need to live, and we think it's very unfair to them. Uh, But some people are really taking advantage of our system from that standpoint, and we are going to be looking very, very strongly, therefore, at welfare reform. It's going to be a very big topic under this administration, and it started already, and we have a lot of a lot of recommendations that we're going to be making and you'll be hearing about them.
2: There's deserved and undeserved poor, right? There's charity versus grace. And that is such an exceedingly racialized dichotomy because again, he's a white nationalist. So he, he doesn't do this sort of typical right-wing thing where he sort of says no one deserves it. Mm -hmm. He is openly, and I think very flagrantly saying that there is a white contingent of people who deserve it and that they're actually being denied this because of welfare by Mm African-Americans The interesting thing about Trump is he again in his, he heightens contradictions. He makes it clear that this is a deeply cuz who the fuck is he, who is these people not getting it versus who are getting it. I mean it doesn't it's not really clear, but it's clear based on his right. his previous rhetoric and his fan base. It's very clear what he means by that. This really fits into
1: this anti civil rights almost like a backlash Against the civil rights movement that started in the 60s, the backlash, and that has continued today. I mean, that there's this kind of grievance industry. But when Trump speaks, it's so reminiscent, I think, of the famous Barry Goldwater campaign slogan from 1964, which was this, in your heart, you know, he's right. And yeah. if you know anything about the Gold War campaign, yeah, yeah. it was anti civil rights. It was all about this sort of very racialized. It's a way of saying that we like, don't talk
2: about it at cocktail parties, but deep down inside, but deep you and down I inside, you both know, know the, that th- those
1: N-words don't deserve money. And yet, this idea, which which now Trump is trafficking on, of course, uh, this has been done for decades and decades. The idea that the welfare state in the United States is such a drain on the system, right? That so much money is going to these people who aren't even working, which A, is not true because most people who get welfare are also working. And the social safety net budget in this country, which includes SNAP and school lunches and TANF and the stuff that we mentioned SSI at the top of the show, um, the entire budget for those things Works out to about 10% of the budget. So far from, far from crippling the federal budget, um, this is, let's say, take from a uh, budget in, in 2015, 10% of that is that social safety net and $3.7 trillion – which was spent by the U.S. government that year, the largest expenditures were social security at about a quarter of the budget, uh, healthcare at about another quarter of the budget, obviously defense and foreign aid at about 16%. And that 10% for these social safety net programs, it includes unemployment insurance, low income housing assistance, uh, help with energy bills, programs that help abused and neglected kids like These are all included in this 10% of the budget, which obviously is not the reason why Republicans are freaking out about the budget, which they don't actually care about. They just care about taking away these
2: programs.
4: Our next guest writes in her recent New York Times op-ed, quote, the Trump administration wants to rebrand social programs that millions of Americans rely on as welfare. Will we fall for it? Well, here to explain is Susan Mettler, author of the new book, The Government Citizen Disconnect. So, Suzanne, let's start with this notion of yours, a, a, a paradox that you call the government citizen disconnect. What? What is the the government-citizen disconnect?
5: What I mean by this is that there is a growing gulf today between Americans' assessment of government and the role that it plays in their lives. So if you go back a few decades, Americans uh, had strong confidence in government, strong trust in government, confidence on several measures. They felt that government was public officials cared about people like them and that kind of thing. On all of those measures, we've seen a real decline over time, and Americans are very hostile toward government today generally. And yet, at the same time, government plays more of a role than ever before in individuals' lives and families' lives through social benefits. And what I mean by that is all kinds of federal social policies ranging from social security and medicare to the earned income tax credit unemployment insurance and so on americans today receive much more than they did a few decades ago through all of these policies so it's a paradox how can government be doing more for us and yet we dislike it more and it's not just
4: payments but it's also things like tax breaks right and Things like uh, mortgage interest deduction and all sorts of different programs that um, benefit one group or another in our society,
5: yes, that's true now um this this pattern, this government citizen disconnect is true even before you look at those policies in the tax code. Um, wow. Some of the data that I use in my book is drawn from the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, and that looks only at the more direct visible programs, things like unemployment insurance and Medicaid and food stamps, et cetera. It looks at over 40 policies. And what you see, looking at that data, it's, it's really striking. The percentage of the average person's income that comes from those federal social benefits has increased in every state in the country from what it was a few decades days ago, it's increased in every county. You know, whether a county is rich or poor, it's using more of those social benefits today than it was a few decades ago. I will have another data set where I add to that policies that are in the tax code that particularly benefit high income people, but for the same purposes as these other more visible policies. And there we see the same trend.
4: Okay so all right so we have more um uh, visible um uh, essentially benefits from the government and more invisible uh benefits from the government and i would imagine the more visible ones are more broadly associated uh, with the government what accounts for that increase in visible or 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 what accounts for it or rather i should say like what uh what are the ilk because uh, i know that we have a, a a i guess like an increasing decrease in the amount of cash payments that we pay out in the form that people traditionally refer to as welfare right
5: right yeah i mean well it's so it's, it's interesting Conservatives has been, you know, at war with government for many decades. Um, if you go back to, say, 1980 or so, when um, when Ronald Reagan was elected and he talked in his inaugural address about the problems of government, you could date that as sort of the beginning of, of a war on government over time. And conservatives wanted to scale back these social policies. Um, in fact, during that whole period, there is only one major social policy that has been done away with, and that's the one that we used to just call welfare all by itself, and that was aid to families with dependent children. In 1996, a Cong- Republican-controlled Congress passed, and Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton signed into law the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act, which terminated what we called welfare and replaced it with a more restrictive program temporary assistance to needy families, and today, less than 1% of Americans benefit from that policy. Um, So, you know, people still, if you ask people about their view of welfare, Americans have very unfavorable views about welfare, and I found in uh, interviews that I did with people that they talk about welfare a lot, but what we used to call welfare barely exists anymore. But now... That term of um, the Trump administration is um, continuing a, a conservative pattern of trying to uh, attach that term to many other policies that lots of Americans use, things like Medicaid, which now almost one in four Americans is using right now and so
4: okay so the the relationship that people have uh, to to government or I guess the perspective that people have on government um, um, mirrors, I mean, what is the relationship? I mean, there's, you write about the relationship that people have, or I guess the perspective that people have on these programs, uh, and it tracks what their perspective is on government. What, uh, for these programs that you consider visible, what is the awareness that they're getting these programs from government? I mean, that yeah. seems like a silly well, question, but I, I you know, right, but I, right. it's the
5: case that, well, first, that, that I people, should say that, um, So I I did a survey where I asked people about 21 different federal social policies, um, if they had ever used each one of these. And then if they had, I asked them questions about, you know, that experience. And I should say that people appreciate the policies they've used, whatever they are, people rank them quite highly. And they say that they were important to them at that juncture in their life. They were very useful, et cetera. But then when I look at what is the relationship of, the policies they've used over their lifetime, how does that connect to their broader attitudes about government? I find it does not have much impact. People don't seem to connect the dots that I used all these policies that helped me in times of need or gave me opportunities to get an education, et cetera, and therefore I feel better about government. That doesn't happen much. The people for whom that actually does happen are people who are very low income and have used some of the very visible means tested policies and you know these are the policies that tend to be most under attack so people who have used um food stamps for example and uh housing subsidies for for low income housing um and um, medicaid and so on beneficiaries are are very appreciative of those policies and they will say government has helped me in times of need um there are also people who've used um, some of the visible policies that help people to afford a college education, particularly Pell Grants and the GI Bill. And they will say, and this is, you know, controlling for all sorts of other factors. Those individuals are much more likely to say, government has provided opportunities for me to improve my standard of living. Um, and uh, And so you do have some effects like that. But then on several other attitudes I looked at, even those visible policies fail to have an impact. And then when it gets to the policies that are in the tax code, which I call submerged because their design makes government's role quite hidden as a provider of social benefits, they have just no impact on improving people's attitudes about government, even though we spend now about $1.5 trillion annually on these policies in the United States.
0: As a listener of this show, you already know that big corporations are getting rich from selling your data, and Congress has completely failed to save net neutrality or protect your privacy online. So in a world in which you simply have to be proactive to protect your privacy, your new best friend is the virtual private network. With one click, they will shield your online activity from internet and mobile providers, hackers, and spies. So I'm very happy to have ExpressVPN supporting the show because they are rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. They have a Full suite of easy to use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, and tablet, and they offer a 30 day money back guarantee. Personally, I have tried a handful of VPNs, and I can absolutely understand why ExpressVPN is rated number one. First of all, I have never had a single hiccup in my service, so I know they are rocks, sets them apart, is their incredibly robust support. No matter your level of technical ability, ExpressVPN stands out in just how easy they make it for you to get set up. They have incredibly detailed instructions to help you protect nearly every internet-connected device you own. You can take back your internet privacy today, and as a special offer, you can get three months free when you go to expressvpn.com left. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn. Dot com slash left for three months free with a one-year package visit expressvpn.com slash left to learn more And now for the Midterms Minute, a look at the candidates and races in battleground districts that you need to know about, shout about, and support to make the biggest impact possible in the election on November 6th. We've also set up the Midterms Minute HQ at bestoftheleft.com slash midterms, where you can view every spotlight segment we produce, every battleground race in the country, all of the Justice Democrats, brand new Congress, and Our Revolution candidates running in November— volunteer resources, and more. We hope you'll take a moment to visit. Again, that's bestoftheleft.com slash midterms. Today, we're going to talk about the battleground races in Illinois, where all of the competitive seats are currently held by Republicans. Illinois has been identified by the political wonks as one of the five states that will help determine the House majority. Clinton won the state in 2016 with 55.8% of the vote to Trump's 38.8%.
6: In Illinois 6th District, which includes Chicago suburbs, Democratic Energy Executive Sean Kasten is challenging Republican incumbent Peter Roskam. Though Casting comes from the energy sector, he says he wants to use that experience to create clean energy jobs for the economy and the environment. And he has some cred to back that up as the co-founder of Recycled Energy Development, a company aiming to profitably reduce greenhouse gas emissions. This district is competitive this year because of Trump's unpopularity in the Chicago suburbs and the fact that Trump lost here by seven points. The race is currently rated by the Cook Political Report as a toss-up.
0: In Illinois' 12th District Democratic St. Clair County State's Attorney, Brendan Kelly, is challenging Republican incumbent Mike Bost. Kelly's campaign message is focused on reducing the role of money in politics to restore faith in democracy in southern Illinois. Until Bost's win in 2015, the district had voted for a Democrat consistently since 1993. Trump surged here, but the race is competitive because of its Democratic history and because Democrats have put up a strong candidate this year. The last polling has Kelly tied with Bost and the race is currently considered a toss-up.
6: In Illinois' 13th district, Democrat Betsy Londrigan is challenging Republican incumbent Rodney Davis, who was first elected in 2012. Rodney is apparently still proud that he voted for the inhumane Trump Care bill of 2017 and seems to think his wife, who had cancer, would still have been able to get coverage. Sure, maybe the Davis family could afford the astronomical Trump care premiums with their congressional subsidy, but millions of other cancer patients would have been shit out of luck. Trump only squeaked by with a win in this district, and the surge of engaged college students in the area could flip this seat for Democrats. However, right now, the race is leaning Republican.
0: In Illinois' 14th district, Democrat Lauren Underwood is challenging Republican incumbent Randy Holtgren, one of the more than 100 Republicans who voted against the Violence Against Women Act. Underwood is a registered nurse who served as a senior policy advisor to Health and Human Services under Obama. She's the first woman to have the Democratic nomination for her district, and at 32, she's the youngest black woman running for Congress this year. If Democrats look like they're going to win this race on election night, that could be a sign that they are going to have a good night elsewhere. Trump won this district, but it's a district with an urban-rural divide. Underwood is only down by 4% in the polls, but the race is currently rated as leaning Republican.
6: Illinois' race for governor is on track to break a spending record set by the 2010 California gubernatorial race. Democratic philanthropist J.B. Pritzker is trying to unseat Republican incumbent Governor Bruce Rahner. Both candidates have self-funded campaigns. Rahner is using the upcoming 2020 redistricting process to try to inspire Republican voters, promising a statewide Democratic takeover if they don't show up for him. The race is currently leaning Democratic.
0: To vote in the midterm elections in Illinois, you must be registered by October 9th, or have registered online by October 21st. There are also registration grace periods in Illinois, but if you don't have to wait, don't. It's never too early to check registration cutoff dates and absentee ballot request and submission dates in your own state. We highly suggest reviewing your state's important dates and voter ID laws at rockthevote.org as soon as possible to ensure that you'll be able to vote in the general election. Links to all of the information you heard today, as well as additional resources, are linked in the show notes. And today's Midterms Minute, along with all of our election information, can be found at bestofleft.com midterms. So if making the blue wave a reality in November is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting Democrats in battleground races across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too.
2: this is a term that even I use casually, but we don't really think about what it means. Yeah. Um, and what your piece did is you went back and you showed how the term welfare has kind of morphed to suit the demagoguery needs of Republicans. Right. Can you just give a background about what the term welfare means and how the media is aiding and abetting this use and misuse of the term?
7: Yeah. So we sometimes tend to think about welfare in terms of just like I don't know, whatever Republicans don't like that poor people get or whatever some Democrats don't like that poor people get. But, you know, the the term and the demagoguery around the term has a very specific history that was up until 1996 associated with a very particular program. The Aid to Families with Dependent Children program, Mm -hmm. which was the thing that Bill Clinton ended when he said we're ending welfare as we know it. Uh, And that was a program that had been started many, many years ago for essentially to help mostly women whose partners had died or whose husbands had left them or something like that. And it was designed as a support for women at a time when women mostly did not work. And if they did work, they did not get paid very much. And what happened with this is that as more Black women began to get access to this program, well, you know how that goes, right? Mm -hmm. The uh, racist white people who were in charge of the government at the time didn't like this so much. And so the program began to be stigmatized in a very particular way. Which was that lazy black women, even though it was never mostly used by black women, we should note, were basically having babies so that they could sponge off of this program. And Ronald Reagan was sort of the famous one who um, introduced the welfare queen into our discourse, um, describing a woman who, you know, was like getting $100,000 a year in government checks, which is like a thing that never happened.
1: Right. But <laughs> we actually played that clip earlier in the show. It's 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 remarkable. Yeah,
7: yeah. And so, you know, so this is a thing that that all of this demagoguery that started in like the 60s and 70s, at the same time, we should note as black women were organizing for better and less punitive welfare. This snowballed until we got 1996, where even the Democratic president is running, campaigning, talking in his state of the union about how we need to move people from welfare to work. and. So in 1996, they passed a law, they ended welfare as we know it, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, because of course, and this, you know, this ended the program. It turned it into block grants. Um, The Temporary Assistance for Needy Families is now the program with temporary being the very operative word there. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a program designed to push poor women into low wage jobs. That is what it is Mm -hmm. designed for. Mm -hmm. That is what it does. Um And so when you look at like the organizing of the fight for 15 now and the the particular workers where this started, it there's a straight through line to these welfare policies, right? These were always, always, always about scapegoating a certain class of women as non-workers, as lazy, as sponging off of productive workers. And this feeds into all sorts of problems that we still have, including the fact that politicians are still recycling the same old lines. Right about how we need to move people from welfare to work, which is what Trump said in the State of the Union. Mm -hmm. Even though we don't have welfare, there is literally no one sitting around getting cash assistance anymore because we don't have welfare like this. You have a tiny group of people who are able to get some benefits for some limited period of time, and then they are forced to take whatever lousy job comes along.
1: Right. I mean, I think something that is so often missed is this idea, as you just said, Sarah, like there isn't, this thing, this program called welfare right. that does right. things for people that, right. you know, as obviously a lot of people would frame it, takes money from hard work in Americans, which always means right. white people, uh, right. and right. gives it to the lazy, unproductive people who don't just don't want to work, which obviously yeah. always means either, you know, black or brown people. Um, right. But there's no actual welfare program. It's this right. catch-all shorthand term. Can you just right. tease that out a little bit for us? Explain yeah. what welfare actually is. Is-
7: I mean, the thing right now, right, is that like we don't know what they mean when the Republicans say they're going to cut welfare. Right. Because like there's nothing that's that's not a specific term. That's like me saying I want to, you know, tax people like, OK, who, what, where? Right. This is For not what? a right. thing. Right. There is nothing called welfare that they can cut. What there is is the broad welfare state, which is something that like we don't talk about as much in this country outside of academic contexts, but is basically is my partner who is actually an academic who studies the welfare state put it. Everything the government does that isn't kill people or spy on them or put them in jail.
2: Yeah, that seems about right.
7: <laughs> but particularly programs like Social Security, Medicaid and Medicare, mm-hmm. right? Um, anything that you think about unemployment insurance, right? Like these are parts of the welfare state in other countries that have reasonable actual welfare states. Mm-hmm. They have things like universal health care. Um, and so, You know, when you look at this Republicans saying welfare, we need to move to well from welfare to work, we're going to target welfare. And when you see this laundry list and I put like seven or eight of them in the article, but I could have done about 12 more of reputable publications saying Republicans to target welfare, Medicaid, Medicare spending. After push on taxes, Republicans line up welfare revamp next. GOP will tackle Medicare, Medicaid welfare in 2018. Trump to take on welfare. Political risk looms over Republicans' welfare tinkering. These are all mainstream publications. These are not like, you know.
1: Yeah, that's like Christian Science Monitor, Reuters, The Times, CNN. Yeah.
7: The thing is, like, there is zero information there. There There is no information in the word welfare. Somewhere in some of these articles, it actually says like, well, what they actually mean is social security, um, which is Mm -hmm. what they actually mean.
2: Right. Which is not a term people would typically associate with welfare because it's not as racialized.
7: Exactly. People think social security is the thing that they have earned and they have worked for and they associate it with being like the opposite of welfare.
2: I mean, it's basically a way of leading by saying republic is going to cut spending for black people. So don't worry, white people. Right. Right. Is really exactly. what really what exactly. that term means. Exactly. Right.
7: Exactly. This is what they're doing, and they're doing it very deliberately. And it's been it's a dog whistle that's been primed for decades. It is designed to appeal straight to this quote unquote white working class base of Trumps, which is actually just rich people who voted for Trump, who think that there is still some population of lazy people who are getting handouts from the government. And that is going to be the way that they actually tackle programs that we all rely on.
2: And then the welfare is typically uh, coupled with this other great sleazy, nebulous neoliberal term, which is reform. Which mm-hmm. um, it sound, it sounds very wholesome. <laughs> like the, there's this sort of corruption of it. It's got it spiraled yes, out of control. Exactly. And it exactly. needs reform. When people say welfare reform, right. what are they, I mean, it almost they must always mean just mindlessly gutting it. Correct? Is there? Is yeah. there
7: I mean, right. I, I, you know, Bill Clinton was at least honest, and he said we want to end welfare as we know it, right? right. Um, and yet it was called welfare reform, and so, right. I mean, when, when Republicans say they want to reform something, they usually mean they want to cut the funding yeah, They want to of murder it. it. Um, this is true about public schools, and it's true about, quote-unquote, welfare. Um, it's true about Social Security. It's true about Medicaid and Medicare. Like, whatever they're talking about reforming, they're talking about making sure fewer people can get it. Right. That's why they're on this right. big kick about work requirements for Medicaid now. Yeah. Because, of course, a program that is the number one form of support for people who are – um, disabled and unable to work, or people who have a disability but have some ability to work, or people who are elderly and can't take care of themselves anymore—that program needs work requirements.
2: Yeah, there's this punitive kind of Puritan streak to it. Um, oh God, yeah. Uh, similar to you know, you have to take drug tests mm-hmm. to get government benefits. There's mm-hmm. a there's a racialization and a kind of condescension to it. Oh yeah. How much is that kind of rhetoric? I mean, I, you know, reading your headlines here, these are from CNN, Reuters, Christian Science Monitor. These are not, mm-hmm. again, these are not like Fox News. No. I was shocked, uh, very much so, and it's hard to do that to me, just how how mindless it had become, because it obviously is very <laughs> racialized.
7: No, like I see people who I who are like leftists, like tweeting sort of things about this and saying welfare. And I was like, it's like, come on, guys! Yeah. Like, we need to actually acknowledge that, like, there is no nothing called welfare. Like, at least in the '90s when they were talking about welfare reform, we sort of knew what they were coming for.
2: Right. Whereas it has a kind of positive connotation in, in Europe. Can you explain how that yeah. those two branches of the tree divided and, and what maybe what the origins oh, of that are. God.
7: You know, I don't know the the particular history about why Europeans are good at using terms like welfare state and neoliberalism and people in the U.S. think that you're nuts and you just made up words. Um, <laughs> but, but right, like the welfare state is a thing that was a, a creature, not entirely, but largely of the post-World War II reconstruction of destroyed Europe. Right. And like the, you know, the English, for instance, Elected a labor government after the war. They, you know, Winston Churchill could win the war. But then after they were like, "Yeah, things are pretty bad. Maybe we need somebody who believes in supporting other humans. Um, And so this labor government is the one that created like the National Health Service. There is a a family allowance in Britain, right, that where everybody gets a certain amount of money and everybody, even the queen, gets Mm -hmm. a certain amount of money per child. Um, This is the kind of thing that like welfare is attacked for. This is just horrible. How could you give people money for having children? You'll just create dependency, right? Right. But in some countries, they realize that raising children is work and it is the reproduction of the society. And these are things that are perhaps important and maybe we want to, you know, encourage people to do. And so the best way to encourage them to do it is make it less difficult for them to afford to. Um, And there are. Many, many examples of this, but like the U.S. never had a very strong public welfare state, most of it. And I was just thinking about this this week and put these two pieces together because I was listening to a podcast with Lane Windham, who has a new book called Knocking on Labor's Door, and she talks about this in the book, that the welfare state in the U.S. is largely provided by employers, and it was provided by employers because unions made them do it. Mm-hmm. And so this has been a positive and a negative, right? Like the labor movement has occasionally at periods in in American history, been a little hesitant about pushing for state provided benefits because then they're like, well, what, why would people join unions if they just got healthcare through the country? Um, But in other cases, the labor movement has spent a lot of time, particularly certain unions like the National Nurses United spent a lot of time advocating for a universal healthcare system. But anyway, What happens is that the government in the U.S. in the form of the National Labor Relations Act encourages unionization. That is what the purpose of that law was back in 1935. Um, And so that was supposed to be the sort of stick, as Wyndham puts it, to make employers bargain with their employees and give them things like health insurance. What's actually happening now is the government is doing the opposite thing. They're giving the stick to the employers by putting work requirements on first on quote unquote welfare, now on Medicaid to force people to take the first available job and to take away their ability to bargain. So if you have work requirements on Medicaid like they're going to have in um, Kentucky and now in Indiana, What happens is that you lose your health insurance because there's a work requirement on it now, and then you have to go get a job because there's a work requirement on your Medicaid, but then you get a job and you make a little too much money to qualify for Medicaid, but you can't get insurance through your employer because your employer is McDonald's and they don't do that. Right. Right. So this is what work requirements for Medicaid are actually going to do. They are going to force people to take lousy jobs that don't give them benefits.
0: We know the laundry list. Billionaire tax breaks, polluters writing clean air policy, children being ripped from their families. This is not what democracy is supposed to look like, but that's how it works with Trump and the conservatives controlling all three branches of government. That's why we're putting so much focus on the midterms with the goal of flipping the House in November. Now is the time to elect progressive candidates who will hold Trump and his corrupt administration accountable, and that's what Swing Left is all about, too. Join Swing Left at swingleft.org slash left to find a nearby swing district to take action now. If we flip just 23 districts in the House, we will take back the majority, and that's the best chance we have to put a check on Trump. That means protecting our health care, protecting the rights of everyone, and protecting our democracy. Everyone who really wants to take a stand must do more than vote this year. We need to get fired up, get off the couch, and volunteer. Join Swing Left to find your nearest swing district and take action now. Sign up now at Swing Left that's left.org slash left.
8: With the debate around so-called work requirements and other proposals to take healthcare, food, and housing away from struggling workers continuing to rage on in Washington and in states across the country, an article in the Washington Post this week takes a look at some of the origins of these types of proposals, tracing them all the way back to the state of Wisconsin, which in many ways was ground zero of quote unquote welfare reform long before President Clinton signed it into law in 1996. I'm pleased to speak with Robert Samuel whose article is titled Wisconsin is the GOP model for welfare reform, but as work requirements grow, so does one family's desperation. Robert is a national political reporter with The Washington Post who covers how policies in Washington affect the lives of everyday Americans. Robert, thanks so much for joining the show.
9: It's a pleasure being here. Thank you.
8: So your recent piece is getting a lot of attention. The title is Wisconsin is the GOP model for, quote, welfare reform, but as work requirements grow, So just one family's desperation. I'd love to start by just asking what got you interested in reporting this story?
9: Coming into 2018, I noticed that lots of Republicans on the Hill were talking about after tax reform, the next thing they wanted to tackle was the social safety net. And it became very clear when you started looking across the state, uh, across the 50 states, that there was a movement going on in lots of places in terms of refining and restricting the welfare was well, a package that we now call as, we now call welfare things like food stamps, Medicaid, public housing. And so I really wanted to know what it must be like to be on one of those programs or need one of those programs and live in a state where it's becoming harder and harder.
8: And it's becoming harder and harder in Wisconsin, in particular, where your story is set uh, because of very specific bills that haven't gotten a ton of national attention uh, that in a lot of ways look like the proposals we're now seeing move through Congress, being advanced by Republicans in particular. Uh, and the story goes back to 2013. Tell a little bit of the story of some of what Wisconsin's been up to when it comes to cutting programs that help families make ends meet.
9: Absolutely. During that time time, uh, this story sort of flew a little under the radar because everyone was so focused on what Governor Scott Walker was doing with public sector unions. But along with that, he put a time restriction that limited the amount of time a person can receive food stamps if they weren't working. Uh, if you are able-bodied and had no children, Sc- Scott Walker pushed legislation that would limit your time on food stamps to three months. And after those three months, you had to show some sort of work-related activity, which means you had to have a job for at least 20 hours a week or go to a training program to show that you wanted a job.
8: And that's a policy that has been in the, uh, the, the law that authorizes the food stamp program now called SNAP, um, for a long time. But a lot of states had actually gotten waivers from that because of the recession and high unemployment. So this was him putting that back into place and in a pretty harsh way. But that's not the only piece of legislation that he, he's moved.
9: No, that's not. And, uh, Scott Walker was at the forefront about, about restricting or reversing the lift of those ravers that you saw that were so popular during the Obama administration. Uh, this February, uh, Scott Walker gave a State of the State Address and said that he wanted to call a special session about welfare reform. And in that, he uh, proposed 10 new restrictions uh, that would limit or reform the social safety net as we know it. Uh, that work requirement for, single-bodied adu- for able-bodied singled adults that I spoke about earlier was brought into families. The n- number of hours that a person had to work was raised from 20 to 30. Uh, all of a sudden, if you owe child support, you're no longer eligible for Medicaid. There are, uh, there was drug testing for public housing. There had already been a move to get drug testing for food stamps. And in the case of, uh, one of the characters in our story, what really struck them was an asset limitation that said if you uh, have a car that's worth more than $20,000, you can no longer be eligible to apply for food stamps.
8: Which, of course, is lots of folks, right, who have just a little bit of money in the bank or maybe even a really cheap car, but, uh, it would mean having to drain their savings or get rid of that vehicle that helps them get to work, also that they can be eligible for basic food. Uh, so this was a package of nine so called welfare reform bills that ultimately passed, uh, through Wisconsin's legislature. Um, and, and of course, Scott Walker's uh, direct quote about why he's doing all of this, for those who are able, public assistance should be a trampoline, not a hammock. We've heard that before. But this isn't the first time that Wisconsin has sort of led the way in terms of finding new ways to take away basics from people who are struggling to make ends meet that other policymakers end up seeing and wanting to uh, to take and make their own. The story actually goes back to the 1990s as your piece tells.
9: Right. Actually, in sort of the history of the idea of welfare reform, it starts in Wisconsin. A governor named Tommy Thompson was the first person who talked about time-limiting uh Sorry, Governor Tommy Thompson was the first person who talked about time limiting what was then called welfare, which we now call cash assistance or TANF. A president named Bill Clinton saw this idea and he thought it was great and modeled it for the federal welfare reform that was uh, taken and propped up by Republicans and Democrats in the Congress at the time.
8: And Wisconsin, in a lot of ways, isn't just ground zero of what became, quote unquote, welfare reform because of specific policies that the governor was championing. There were other people involved uh, who became sort of architects of this movement, um, one of whom uh, is uh, was the the secretary of welfare at the time in the state. That's right. So take us to present day. What do we know about what happened after these policies were put into place? Republicans often look to them and they say, ah, this is the way to get people to work. They wrap everything up in, in sort of puppies and rainbows language about promoting work and helping families get the the kick in the butt that they maybe need. That's sort of the language we often hear. Uh, but what do we know about what actually happened after we saw these policies go into effect? Well, in
9: 1996, on the, on the national level, what we saw was, uh, there were inter- there was a lot of interest in how this would work. And, uh, the federal government commissioned a study, a five-year look at a bunch of welfare programs, uh, in which they had a group that was subjected to these new requirements and a control group. And what they found was initially very encouraging during the first two years of that evaluation they saw families who were subjected to work requirements they got jobs faster and their incomes were rising faster and it looked like a success but toward the fifth year something really unusual started to happen in their mind uh, those gains were lost, and families uh, who were in that control group who were not subjected to work requirements, their uh, employment numbers were the, about the same. Their income numbers were actually a little bit higher, not statistically so, but a little bit higher. And it appeared that long term it did not make that much of a difference, and it uh, highlighted the idea that the bigger problem might be uh, jobs. And the fact that they, people were living in community where there was not access to good paying, consistent jobs, uh, that were year round and not seasonal. Uh, in Wisconsin, what we saw was super interesting. For most, uh, People who believe in these welfare requirements, uh, it's charted as a success because they will tell you, and the numbers show this: that twenty-five thousand people found work uh, after they were sanctioned because they went through the training program that the state of Wisconsin had encouraged them to go to. Uh, what the state doesn't really talk about as much is the fact that eighty-six thousand of those eighty-six thousand people who are on food stamps uh they did not report getting a new job when they were sanctioned and no one knows what happened to them and uh the states not looking uh they presume uh with no evidence that some of those people found a new job uh the opponents and the hunger advocates would say that's very uh, wishful thinking.
8: So you end up having all this focus on this 25,000 number, which sounds really great without any context. Of course, that's out of a statewide total of 700,000 people that we're talking about here, right? Yeah. So folks can do the math in terms of what kind of a percentage that is. But you've got way more, more than three times the number of people who ended up actually finding work at whatever point in time this was getting measured, um, uh, who aren't get, uh, necessarily better off, who the state isn't aware, have found... Uh, uh, work and who are now just hungrier.
9: Yeah. Well, the 25,000 to 700,000 ratio isn't, I think, too fair, um, because, uh, not all those people were subject to the requirements. These are single bodied, um, they're single bodied able adults. Uh the seven hundred thousand number includes families and uh includes people who are disabled and like that. So it's not truly apples to apples. But the twenty five thousand to eighty six thousand is fairly comparable because there are people in the same bucket. And uh the eighty six thousand what really struck me about that number was there wasn't much interest from the state level to figure out uh what the issue was with these people and why they couldn't find jobs uh, for those who are in the business of feeding people. That's a strange way of putting it. But people who run food pantries, people in churches and homeless shelters who feel a moral obligation to feed the hungry and feed the sick, Uh they're wondering well, gee, how are we going to be able to feed all these people? The numbers of folks who need the help uh, in some cases have quintupled uh, since those work requirements were initiated in t- 2013.
10: Laura grew up in foster care, moved around a lot, dropped out of high school. By her mid-20s, she had found some stability. She'd gotten her GED,
3: a series of jobs she liked. I'm kind of a Jill of all trades. I've worked in a eyeglasses lab. I've done retail. I was a tour guide at a couple different places where I'm from, Salem,
10: Massachusetts. She was bringing in a steady, if modest, paycheck. She and her husband were expecting their first child, and then...
3: (laughs) Out it came, out the rug came, and that is the downward spiral. It's one thing, and then you lose another thing, and you lose another, and it just keeps going.
10: In Laura's case, that downward spiral started with her home getting condemned and ended with a messy breakup with her husband. Now she and her daughters
3: are in Tulsa, trying to start over again. I currently live at the Salvation Army with my, my two children, um, just because we were really running out of options where to go at that point, because we don't have a whole lot of family that could help us out even for a month or so, so I could, you know, we could get back on our feet.
10: There is one other place you might expect Laura and her family to go in this situation while she tried to get back on her feet, the County Welfare Office. For many decades in this country, that's where families often turned when they were desperate. No money, no family to turn to for help. And in fact, Laura did go down to the local office to look into applying for cash
3: welfare. She spoke to a caseworker there. And I said, well, I need to apply for TNF. And he turned around and said, no, you don't need to. You want to.
10: Laura says between that embarrassment and all the hoops involved in applying forms to fill out, hours waiting to speak to a caseworker,
3: she decided to give up on cash welfare. I'm, I'm really trying to, to get a job um, on my own. Stories like these are
10: common in many parts of the country today. Very few poor families actually receive any cash welfare anymore. Nationally, just 23 out of every 100 families who live below the poverty line. And in Oklahoma, it's even more extreme Just seven out of every hundred. Laura does get food stamps, but that only covers food. And there's lots of other really basic stuff that you need to get by day to day that's not food.
3: Cough syrup. Cough medicine is very expensive, even for children. I try to put a squirrel a little bit away for a rainy day, but it hasn't always been successful. And it does get hard when you're down to your last dollar and it's, well, do I go buy a four-pack of toilet paper or do I get coughs or for my kids?
10: All these little things add up every month. And to complicate matters, without the cash to cover them, it's actually hard to get a job. Your bus is late taking you to your job interview. You don't have clean clothes. The callback number on your resume is a homeless shelter. So let's put this all in a little perspective. Poor families like Laura's are not getting temporary assistance for needy family dollars. But for more than a decade, TANF money has been going to middle-class families looking for relationship help. Here are some recent numbers. In 2014, Oklahoma spent almost $200 million of TANF money. Promoting marriage and preventing out-of-wedlock pregnancy accounted for about 5% of that spending. Just a little more, 9%, went to cash assistance for poor families, what we think of when we think of welfare. I wondered what Laura Grennan, who was discouraged from applying for cash welfare, would think of these
3: numbers. So I walked her through them. As far as as marriage counseling or classes, um, I don't know if that's the best way to spend a budget. I have a lot of questions, I think, and one is definitely the way that that budget is split up. So how did the welfare budget get
10: split up this way? The answer comes down to four bullet points. And I even printed them out so I wouldn't stumble. This is Liz Schott, a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. She, for the last few years, has been obsessed with how and why states spend federal welfare money your taxpayer money, like they do. She says it all comes down to these four bullet points buried in the 1996 welfare reform bill under the subheading purpose. They start off simple enough.
11: First is providing assistance to needy families so children can be cared for in their homes. That's really your basic cash welfare that we've been talking about. And then there's the second bullet point, the second purpose. And the second purpose is about uh, promoting work preparation. And those two purposes really are what I think most thought that welfare reform was about.
10: But then we get to purposes three and four, and
11: things take a twist. The third purpose of TANF is preventing and reducing the incidence of -of out-of-wedlock pregnancies. And the fourth purpose, encouraging the formation and the maintenance of two-parent families. These last two purposes,
10: focusing on marriage and preventing out-of-wedlock pregnancies, had been pushed for years by Republican and Democratic welfare reformers who were alarmed by the rise of single-parent families. Data shows that children with single moms are four to five times more likely to be in poverty than those in married families. But the fact that these two purposes, focusing on family formation, became such an integral part of the goals of welfare reform, that did not make a lot of headlines in 1996 when the welfare reform bill was passed. In fact, this emphasis on marriage and two-parent families didn't even get much notice from policy wonks like Liz Schott at the time.
11: You know, I don't think anyone really paid attention in 1996. You read a statute, you read a bill, and there's all these whereas's. That's just blah, blah, blah. Well, here it turns out that controls how the money can be spent. Those four bullet points were the closest the bill came
10: to clearly defining how states could spend their block grants. And they opened the door to a whole world of possibility. Liz started to look more closely at just how each state spends that $16.5 billion allocated for needy families each year. She combed through the hundreds of annual reports that states have sent to the feds since welfare reform, describing where the money goes and which of the four purposes justifies that spending.
11: When we started slicing them and dicing them, we began to see uh, very dramatic patterns.
10: One of the biggest patterns? Nationwide, in the last few years, less than a quarter of welfare money is being spent on actual cash assistance for poor families, less than a quarter on child care and work supports to help poor families find jobs. And as for the rest of the money, much of it goes to pretty much anything that might fit, even vaguely, under purposes three and four. Which brings us back to that wintry night in Oklahoma, and to this conference room.
12: So here's what I want you to do. Uh, in your workbook, your fun book, I want you to, on 56...
10: Where the teacher, paid by federal welfare dollars, is standing, where he's asking couples of various income brackets, from working class to upper middle class.
12: What do you think your top three love styles are? And then what do you think your least three love styles are?
10: But the really strange part? At the center of all this is a for-profit company. I'm Mary Myrick, and I'm the president of Public Strategies. Mary Myrick got her start working on political campaigns for Republican candidates in Oklahoma. But since 2001, her company, Public Strategies, has received more than $70 million in welfare money to run these relationship classes for Oklahoma. The whole idea took hold in the state in the late 90s after a report came out looking at why Oklahoma had one of the lowest per capita incomes in the country.
13: And it said all the things that an economic report would say that you have a hard time understanding um, unless you're an economist. Kendi
10: Cox also works at Public Strategies, running many of their marriage classes. She says at the end of the report, there was this one part that caught state leaders' attention.
13: It said you have Too much divorce, too many out-of-wedlock births, and up until that point, nobody had really made the connection between divorce and the economy.
10: The report came out right around the same time as welfare reform kicked in, and the new system of block grants that states could use for anything that broadly fit those four bullet points, those four purposes— including the last two, about marriage.
13: And so our governor at the time met with our Department of Human Services and said, why don't we use a very small portion of that money to try some innovative things to strengthen families? And the Oklahoma Marriage Initiative was
10: born. Over the years, they've offered so many different classes targeted at different demographics Kendi can barely keep track.
13: Forever For Real that is targeted to the needs of couples, whether they're engaged, married, seriously, dating. Heart and Soul is crafted toward the needs of African-American couples and individuals. We have the Spanish version of Forever For Real, which is reali para siempre. I don't have that rolling of my R's down very well. And the list goes on.
10: Some classes have been targeted towards low-income people, but most have been open to everyone rich, poor, and in between. But since their inception, all of these programs have been funded in part by the federal government through TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. And that's concerned some state lawmakers from both parties, including Democratic State Representative Jeannie McDaniel.
13: Having healthy marriages is a worthy goal. I I understand kids need two parents. I support marriage. But at the same time, is this the best use of TANF funds? McDaniel
10: says she was surprised when she first heard about how the Oklahoma Marriage Initiative was being funded. I had never heard about it. Even as a legislator. Even as a legislator. Who's on the Appropriations Committee doesn't know how the TANF dollars are spent. Right. That's true. You might think lawmakers like Jeannie McDaniel would have more involvement in where their own state concentrates its welfare spending. But that task falls to the administrators of the Oklahoma Department of Human Services. Jim Struby is the director of adult and family services there. He runs the cash assistance program in Oklahoma. And so I asked him, does it concern you that so little money goes to basic assistance to direct cash assistance?
12: Um. yes
10: do you have more to say <laughs> <laughs> um, why I,
12: I, 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 one of the things that I'm keenly aware of low income families are up against obstacles um, that middle class and upper class obviously um, families don't ever have to deal with and so any amount of mm-hmm. Uh, support we can give them, I think, is important.
10: I told him about the stories I'd heard from Laura Grennan and others, who'd tried to sign up for welfare and been discouraged by caseworkers from applying, with comments like, you don't need it, you want it. He acknowledged, this is a problem.
12: We're aware that out in some of our communities, there are workers who Um, discourage participation either um, with the kind of comment you said or uh, they're just less than enthusiastic in the eligibility process.
10: And Struby told me he thinks Oklahoma has spent too much welfare money on promoting marriage and healthy relationships, given the need for basic cash assistance in the state. I have to say I'm surprised to hear you as somebody high up in in the department saying that you don't think that your department spends enough on cash assistance.
12: I'm surprised you're surprised.
10: (laughs) Well, I guess just because if if anybody could could do something about it, wouldn't it wouldn't it be you and your department?
12: Well, there are a lot of things to consider. I mean, one thing is that that we pay for a lot of other important things with TANF dollars.
10: And that is the confusing, some would say infuriating paradox that lies at the heart of how welfare spending is structured today, not just in Oklahoma, but across the country. The money has become so flexible that everyone wants a piece of it to fund their state program. And as 5% here and 10% there get funneled to other state concerns, we're in a place where 20 years after welfare reform and all those welfare-to-work slogans, there's very little welfare money that goes towards what we think of as welfare or work.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Citations Needed discussing the Welfare Dog Whistle, Ring of Fire spoke with Suzanne Mettler in an effort to understand the government-citizen disconnect, Citations Needed came back to continue discussing the Welfare Dog Whistle with guest Sarah Jaffe, Off Kilter interviewed Robert Samuels about the history of work requirements and the war on Medicaid, and finally we just heard an in-depth story from Reveal about just how much welfare has changed from what we thought it was into something vastly different. Uh, members are going to be getting a bonus episode with a couple of additional clips on today's topic one that debunks the claim that welfare programs make people lazy and another that rhetorically reframes the concept of welfare programs in a very helpful way as investments in opportunity creation just the same way that politicians frame tax incentives for businesses as investments for the future for details on membership visit patreon.com best of the left you can also find that link in the show notes on your devices which is also where you can find links to each Of these segments for easy reference and sharing. Uh, So, we don't have any voicemails today. I just want to wrap up. Uh, I want to point out that maybe uh, very sharp listeners will have noticed that in a recent episode, I included a clip that sort of put to bed the idea of only conservatives voting against their own best interest. And it pointed out that progressives actually vote against their own economic best interest all the time. Because they're voting on their principles. And so it was argued that conservatives are really just doing the same thing. It's sort of a mirror image situation. And today's episode included that old framing. So I wanted to address it. Uh, You know, it's not something that I like or agree with, but I don't agree with every sentence that's uttered that ends up on the show. And I was never totally thrilled with that framing of an argument about poor conservatives voting against their own economic best interest. Um, but it's been hard to escape. To be honest, it's it's sort of ubiquitous in progressive conversational circles. And on one hand, it's true But, you know, I felt like there must have been a better framing for that concept, and I just hadn't heard it before that clip. It was Van Jones who was talking about it. And the biggest problem I had with that old framing that, you know, poor conservatives are voting against their own best interests is that it implies stupidity, which is rude and also wrong. So one of my guiding principles to help me understand the world is that when I come upon something that I don't understand – I really try to not let myself assume that stupidity is at the root. So whether it's something that's, you know, uh, something physically designed or a policy someone has put in place, or it's just the actions of an individual that I witness, I may see something and think, like, why would they do that? That is so stupid. But I really always try to stop myself and figure out what the underlying reasons are that someone had for doing what they're doing. And maybe once I figure out what those underlying reasons are, I will still conclude that it was stupid, but I I don't let that be my default anymore. So when it comes to conservatives, there's also the God, guns, and gays formulation that tries to help explain their voting patterns. But when you ask them about social safety net programs specifically, like we heard today, they're often either outright against them or think they're overfunded. So this discussion can stand on its own. And the inclination can be to think, well, that's stupid. First of all, if anything, they're underfunded, not overfunded. Second, don't you realize everyone would be better off? The whole society would be better off if the poorest among us were better off? And thirdly, hey, you non-rich conservatives, don't you realize that you personally would be better off? But as Van Jones pointed out, it's not primarily a misunderstanding of all of this that makes conservatives take this position. They're taking a principled stand either against taxation, which they may see as unfair in general, or against the unfairness of giving money to undeserving people, or both. And the question should be about where those principles come from. You know, Uh, we all have a sense of fairness and justice, so when it comes to safety net programs... No one likes that fraud happens or that perverse incentives exist that create unfairness. But it's up to us to choose whether we want to see the big picture or the small picture. The big picture could be that a program helps millions of people and society as a whole is better off for its existence. And the small picture could include instances of fraud or unfairness. So then the question is, which is more important to focus on? Now, if someone can be convinced to focus on the unfairness, then they may think it's worth doing away with the program or defunding it. But if someone thinks about the big picture, they may find it easy to accept some amount of unfairness that is inherent in a system like that for the sake of the greater good. And this is usually where the debate starts. But unfortunately, the debate is dominated by rich, very powerful people who are ideologically opposed to social safety net programs, and also just happen to be in a position of benefiting greatly if those programs were dismantled, mostly due to enormous tax savings they would get. So these people fund organizations whose job it is to push messages with the goal of highlighting those small-picture negatives wherever they exist while completely ignoring or distorting the big-picture positives, plus using very old very subtle tactics to invoke deeply embedded feelings of racism and classism with terms like lazy and takers and so on so that you know e- even in instances where there is no fraud there is no unfairness a person has met every qualification to receive benefits they can still be thought of as morally undeserving thereby making it unfair in many people's minds to give public money to that Undeserving person. So so no, I don't think that people are stupid for voting against their own economic interests. They have principles. They want to stand against all cases of waste, fraud, or abuse. In essence, they dislike unfairness. And who could blame them? However, what I think is that through propaganda that guides them to only see the negative and never see the positive or to see the positive benefits as being granted to groups of people who are intrinsically unworthy of help, Huge numbers of people are convinced to adopt a worldview that they hold genuinely that makes them vote against not their best interests, but society's best interest. And that's what's far more problematic. The data is in. We know that strong social safety nets make society better in so many ways we couldn't possibly list them all here. So it's not about individual racism, individual choices, individual fairness. It's about these powerful forces who are intentionally distorting the reality of the benefits of social safety net programs. They play on systemic racism and tropes about laziness and makers and takers, the deserving, the undeserving, to push a philosophy that people genuinely buy into that, that, is this hyper individualism that uh, fairness is the the highest value that everyone being equal and treated as individuals is the most important thing, even if that results in a identifiably quantifiably worse society for everyone. But they hold that value up so high that uh, we focus on individualism. Rather than what is a much healthier mix of individual freedoms, which are incredibly important, and robust communitarian supports that help support individuals to be their best individual selves. And all of this only serves to enrich and empower the already rich and the already powerful while convincing enough of the rest of us that it's just a natural state of the world rather than the result of a carefully thought out plan which it absolutely is. So I just wanted to clarify my thoughts on that. Keep the comments coming in at 202 999 3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at slash best of the left, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode,